Thank you for listening to the official podcast of Everyday Church. We are a body of believers in Oklahoma City with the mission to live out our faith on a daily basis. Let's listen in as we hear a powerful message from God's Word. We have a good-looking crew here today. I'm glad that you are with us. I hope that you all are well. Uh, I'll give you all a special shout-out, but L-Train, it's good to see you, girl. Glad that you are with us. Now, we're continuing this series talking about what does the Bible say about different topics, right? That's what we're talking about. And we're going to the Scripture, and we're trying to answer all of these different topics, different questions. Now, I think as we look at that, why are we going to the Bible, right? I think that's a fair question to say, because I've had that conversation with people, and I've looked online, and there have been a lot of posts recently about trusting the validity of Scripture, and there's been these arguments about, can you trust the Bible? Is the Bible really real? Well, there's this error, this problem, da 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 I've had several conversations with people that don't believe in Jesus, and they're like, well, I don't, why, are, why are you saying the Bible? I don't, I don't believe in the Bible. And so I think this is a good question. One of the questions submitted to us was kind of in that same realm. A, a question that was turned in is, why are there books of the Bible in the Catholic Bible, not in our Bible? And, and so I, I think these are all in the same arena. And it's a good question for us to ask today is, can we trust the Holy Bible? As we have it, the Scriptures, can we trust the Bible? And, and I think that's a, a question that you should ask because we highlight the Bible. We highlight the Word of God. We look into the Scriptures, and it's very important for us. It's our bread of life. And uh, you, you've heard me quote Scripture. We started this whole series about praying through the Bible. And so this is a big topic for us to unpack today. And I want to kind of revisit some things that I've already taught you, but I want to add some new things in relationship to this as well, because the Bible is the primary way God speaks to us. This is how God is revealed to us. Now, revelation, by definition, is God's means in, in the ways that he has chosen to reveal himself or speak to us, okay, to show himself to us. And so, revelation is reliable, and it's helpful because revelation isn't us guessing the revelation of God. We're not guessing because he's speaking to us. It's God speaking. And he's telling us who he is, what he's about, what he desires. He tells us how to have a relationship with him. He speaks to us and he invites us to speak to him as well. And so this is very important. Now today, I'm going to fly through a bunch of information in this series just because there are questions. I'm approaching it in a more academia or academic type of sense. And so instead of passing out papers to fill out notes because we're in a uh, kind of a touchless world right now, I, I decided not to do that. But if you have a phone uh, or, and you want to take good notes, I'm going to give you a ton of information. All right? Because most of you got some sort of smartphone or device with you. You can use that. Or if you want to excuse yourself and go back and grab one of the Connect cards and a pen, feel free to do that as well. Or maybe you even have a napkin or tissue. Maybe you brought some mascara with you or lipstick. Whatever you want to use, all right, maybe you got a tattoo gun. You're like, all right, here we go. I'm serious. Lots of good information today, okay? Now, there's two broad categories of revelation. The first is general revelation. This is the first category of revelation. It's general, okay? It's general in, in, in that it's available to all people at all times and all cultures and all circumstances, and it's general in nature that it's not specific, okay? It's not telling us information like Jesus died on the cross 
for our sins. It's just general. It's for all people in all times, in all places, all cultures, all circumstances. Now, there's at least three places that the Bible speaks of general revelation. There might be more, but here's the three primary ways we see general revelation. Now, the first is in creation. All right, this is the first category of general revelation, creation. I want to read to you what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. You've probably heard this before, but I think it's important for us to understand that God is revealed generally speaking in creation. He speaks to us through creation. Romans 1.19 says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Well, how? For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see who his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. That speaks to us that God is generally revealed. There's revelation through creation. Other places echo the same belief. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they do what? They continue to speak. Night after night, very important, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. That's creation. His general revelation. It speaks to who God is. It reveals to us the divine nature of God. It gives us understanding about who he is and his character, generally speaking. Okay, part of creation. One of the most awe-inspiring aspects of creation is the human body. The body is very specific and complex, and that's general revelation, talking to us about a designer, an intelligent designer, God. You want to know about how the heart works. Hang out with Jonathan Castillo, and you'll be amazed at how you say, well, God did that. You look at the eye, the complexity of how the eye functions. I don't know who you would talk to about that. Chad, maybe. Okay, someone. I don't know. He, he probably knows nothing, but just have a conversation with Chad. But you talk about the eye, or you talk about how the skin replenishes itself, or how the body fights infection. It's amazing. Okay, it points to God. David said in Psalm 139, verse 13, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body. This is, would fall under creation, the human body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. That's the body. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. So when we look at how crazy precise the earth is even, and we look at the human body, we look at creation, we look at the systems of, of the planet to the body, all of these things scream the loving care of God. We couldn't function without God's hand. All right, that's general revelation. Another way God generally reveals himself is through common grace. It's common and that it's for everyone, okay? It's a gift that could be experienced and even attended for all people, for anyone and everyone. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, for he gives us his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike, okay? It's, it's grace that would allow someone that even despises God to learn something, to experience something wonderful. 
to even be successful. These are blessings that show up in anyone's life just because it's our God's good. There's common grace that he pursues people, he woos people, that he allows us to experience the sunshine and the rain, that there is good in this planet, okay? That would be common grace. The last category of general revelation is conscience. Creation is more the external witness that God can reveal to us, but our conscience is an eternal witness that reveals to us the goodness, the holiness, and the justice of God. Our conscience does this. Okay, in Romans 1, we saw Paul talk about creation. In Romans 2, he says this, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. He's talking about the conscience. Verse 15, this is Romans 2, 15. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. What Paul's saying is that every human being, whether or not they're a Christian, experiences general revelation through the inward conviction of their conscience. People will not do certain things even though they don't believe in Jesus because deep down in their conscience, they believe. That's probably not the right thing to do. And there are people that will choose to do something that is wrong and then feel poorly about it or feel bad about it because they know that wasn't right. They did something wrong. That's the conscience. It's general Revelation. It's available to all people. Okay, but there's a different type of revelation that theologians call special revelation. Right? There's general and then there's special. This is information about God that is more specific. It's clearer and it's really for a smaller number of people than general revelation. I'll give you three examples of specific or special revelation. The first one is miracles. Okay? Miracles. These are supernatural occurrences in the New Testament when an angel shows up to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to the Savior. Or when Paul's on the road to Damascus to take down Christians, is blinded by this light and, and says, why are, uh, and hears a voice saying, why are you persecuting me? Okay, that is a miracle. That is God's hand in an unusual way, a supernatural way. Okay, Miraculous. That is a very special revelation intended for a person or group, a smaller group of people. Today, I've heard of people that have had a miraculous healing or God showed up in a dream or a vision that spoke to them. God still has miraculous intervention. That's special revelation. There's another example of special revelation, which is Jesus. All right, Jesus would be a, a second category of special revelation. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. Okay, He is eternally God who came into human history as a man. Philippians 2 says this, verse 6, Though he, referring to Jesus, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is special Revelation. That's God speaking to us. He revealed himself to us 
by entering into human history humbly as the man Jesus Christ. That's special revelation. That's God speaking to us, revealing himself to us, and he did that through Jesus. Now, that's a long setup for where we're going to camp out, all right? We're going to camp out with a third category of special revelation, and that is the Bible, okay? This is where we are today. This is what we're going to focus on. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, that it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. That's pretty important. That's the Bible. And so if Scripture is God revealed and all of it is inspired by God, let's take a deeper look at the Scriptures. Okay, a little background. How many languages was the Bible written in? Three. Okay, Hebrew, almost all of the Old Testament. Greek, most of the New Testament, but there's Aramaic, tad, a tad bit in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New Testament. So three languages. It was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 authors who had different ages and different backgrounds and, and even different continents. It was written over three continents on Asia, Africa, and Europe. How many books in the Bible? 66. All right, there's 66 books, and these books are not placed in the Bible by chronological or historical order. That's not what they're done, okay? They're actually put in by genre. You have the law together in the Old Testament. You've got the first five books of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you've got the prophets together. You've got the, the, the poetic and wisdom literature together in the New Testament. You've got the biographies, the life of Jesus. You've got the gospels together. You've got the letters together. And so in some ways, when you pick up the Bible, it's like picking up a library, all right, they're not based in chronological order. They're based by genre. They're put together in that fashion. What's a good guess of how many chapters in the Bible? Do, do, do. You're like, man, I've missed every one. I'm not, I'm not answering this one. Three, that would be pretty cool. Jessica said 365. What's cool about that is that I've heard that do not fear is in the Bible 365 times. And so for every day, you got a Jesus saying, do not fear, or the, the word of the Lord saying, do not fear. But there's actually 1,189 chapters, almost 1,200 chapters in the Bible. Now, those chapters were inserted in the 1,200s, okay? They were inserted by scholars. In the 1,500s, the verses were added to the chapters. How many verses do you think are in the Bible? There's more than chapters, I can tell you that. Who said, what was that, Kathy? Really close, add another zero. There's over 30,000 verses in the Bible. Now, I told you, 1,200s, you got chapters added. 1,500s, you got verses added. Why were they added? Just like you've got a number at your house. They're, it's to help people find your house. These chapters and verses were added later so that people could find specific passages, specific things in the Bible easier. That's why those were added by scholars. Now, I tell you they were added later for this reason. The Bible was never written with the intention of being read in bits and pieces. This is so important. Would you please remember this? The Bible was never written with the intention of being read in bits and pieces. Chapters, verses are helpful, but they're not authoritative. 
Okay? They're very helpful in our Bible uh, reading, and they help us find things, but it's too easy to read verses out of context because you haven't read the whole. Okay? It, it's, it's easy to get misguided on who you think God is because you've cherry-picked a couple verses without understanding the, the, the wholeness of Scripture. Rightly interpreting Scripture requires paying attention both to these things, immediate content and the overall context of all of Scripture. Context is extremely important. You need to know what's around it because those verses weren't there when it was written. Those chapters weren't there. That help, I'm glad they're there. I'm not against that. They're very helpful, but they also can be abused because you don't understand the context of what is actually being spoken because you're reading it in bits and pieces. That was not the heart of Scripture. So you got to understand the whole of the Bible to understand the parts. That's why I read the one-year Bible quite often. I would encourage you to really dive into the Word of God, not just your favorite five verses over and over again or five chapters. Read the entirety of Scripture. I would also add this. When, uh, when Scripture is rightly interpreted, it is ultimately about Jesus as God, our Savior, the object of our faith, forgiver of our sins, and giver of eternal life. Even the Old Testament is really about Jesus. To correctly interpret the Bible, you will need to connect its verses, concepts, and all events to Jesus. I love what Jesus said in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And talking to some religious folk, he said, you want to know what the scripture is about? It's about me. It's about me, the Messiah, who's come to redeem the whole world. Luke 24 wrote to Emmaus, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus used the Old Testament and showed these people, hey, this is, a, this is who I am. This is about me. This is what I had to do, okay? And, and you really have to read the whole Bible to understand it all is about Jesus. I'll give you a couple examples of how the Old Testament points to Jesus. You can think about the first Adam who failed his temptation in the garden to the last Adam, Jesus, who passed his temptation in the garden and in doing so was able to offer righteousness to all of us because the first Adam brought us sin. You can think about certain events like Passover, how the blood of the lamb brought life for the Israelites and how Jesus does that for us. You can think about the sacrifice of Isaac and how a substitutionary lamb was provided for the sacrifice of the son. Now, all of that makes sense when you think about what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You think about last week, we unpacked the veil and how the, the, the tearing of Christ's body, his sacrifice gives us unfettered or free access to God the Father. To properly understand the Old Testament, we must connect it to the person and work of Jesus. Okay, All of the Old Testament is most fully revealed in Jesus. It's in Jesus that our lives are changed, and that's the power of the Word of God. It points to him. Jesus can speak through all of Scripture. 
all of it. And there are many people that say, well, I'd love to hear from God. I would love for him to communicate with me or to me. Every time we open up the Bible, that's what God is doing. He's speaking to us. It's special revelation. Now, of course, he used human authors. There's no denying that. He used their personalities. He used their experiences. But they wrote with the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. And so we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. What Paul's saying, I'm not telling you something I learned or made up. I'm telling you what God, the Holy Spirit, is revealing. We believe that all the words of Scripture are the miraculous revelation from God, the Holy Spirit. There's no other books that are divinely inspired as Scripture is. It is God's Word to us. It is Him speaking to us. Whatever's in your life, even today, it's practical. You need the Bible from work, sex, worship, friendship, marriage, parenting, stewardship. It's all there. There's no part of your life that should be disconnected from Scripture. Really, no part of your life should be disconnected from the Word of God, from the Bible. Now, don't get it twisted. The Bible doesn't tell you how to perform open heart surgery. It doesn't tell you how to fix your dishwasher. That's what YouTube is for, especially the open heart surgery. Uh, you can probably find that on YouTube. There's no telling. Right? YouTube is a great father. If you didn't have one teaching you things, you go right to YouTube to learn. But it, the Bible isn't necessarily going to tell you those specific things. But what we understand is is things that we learn through general revelation, we need to check it with Scripture. And if, there, if it agrees with Scripture, there's no disagreement from the Word of God, then there's freedom. Okay, There's freedom that we have. Now, I want to touch quickly on, on the Bible's accuracy. And I know I've got so much information, so I'm just trying to give us a, an overview as much as possible. But I, I want to show you why I think we can trust the manuscripts. First off, Jesus taught or, from a manuscript. Okay, He quoted scripture a lot, but in Luke 4, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. That wasn't the original scroll of Isaiah. It was a copy. In that day and age, life was different. Copies were made all the time. That's just how life functioned. It was an oral society too. Things were memorized and repeated over and over again. Until then, copies were being made. And so Jesus had access to translations. He trusted them, which I think is a good indicator for us that we can trust them too. I'm going to show you this chart though, and I think this is very helpful for us, because I, I would say that we should treat the New Testament like we do the rest of Western literature. If, if you ever study uh, philosophy, I had philosophy in, in college, and you look at Socrates and Aristotle and, and Plato, it's going to be one of those people, that philosophers that you look at. If you just look at this little chart here, chart, it says date written 400 BC, uh, the earliest manuscript uh, that it is found is 895. There's a time gap of about 1,300 years there. So there used to be found seven old copies of that. Well, now there's 210. 210 copies of Plato. Okay, now maybe you haven't read Plato. Maybe you've read Homer. Anyone have read Homer? Not, not the Simpsons, okay? Some of you have like, I know Homer very well. Him and Bart, hilarious. Okay, the Odyssey. That's a, that's a famous one, or the Iliad, all right? And, and so you have date written 800 B.C., the earliest is 400 B.C., time gap 400 years, 1,700 
copies. Now, we go down to the New Testament, very last one here. We have date written anywhere between 50 to 100, uh, earliest manuscript, 130 or less. I've actually uh, heard from different scholars. It can be, the time gap is really about 30 years. And and eyewitnesses still alive, people still alive from when Jesus lived. There's almost 6,000 manuscripts. That's just Greek. You take in other languages and there's 25,000. No one debates Homer. No one debates Plato. But yet, boy, people want to throw the New Testament under the bus. Right? If, if we treated the rest of Western literature the way that we treat the New Testament, I say we, I'm talking about skeptics, cynics, those that would rather the New Testament not be around, then we would have no literature whatsoever. There is ample proof and validity to the Holy Scriptures and specifically to the New Testament. There's plenty of manuscripts and copies. But no one is saying, hey, uh, we, we shouldn't take into consideration all these other people. They're saying, yeah, these are legitimate. The point is, all right, the New Testament is legitimate. And, and it's reasonable and it's, it's acceptable for us to believe in the New Testament as we have it. God has given us ample number of manuscripts closely written to the date of the original so that we could trust the Bible. All right, just want to make sure that we highlighted the accuracy. Now, let me get to the question between the Protestant Bible and the Catholic Bible. Okay, it really starts with the word canon. The canon of Scripture is the collection of books that the church has recognized as having divine authority in matters of faith and doctrine. The word canon means a rule, a measuring rod. It's the standard. It's what you measure against, okay? The canon is an authority to which other truth claims are compared and by which they are measured. The canon of Scripture that we have today, we have 39 books of the Old Testament, we have 27 books of the New Testament, which equals? Yes, we cover that, okay? 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, and they are recognized by the church as a complete canon. These books are inspired by God, received as uniquely authoritative because they're from God, they're God speaking to his people, they're special revelation. Now a little history. 250 years before Jesus, there were some Greek-speaking Jews that translated the Old Testament into Greek. Okay, this is just shortly, 250 years before. Okay, Jews have been living thousands of years. This is 250 years before Jesus, some Greek-speaking Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, calling it the Septuagint. All right, so they came up with this Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. In that process of creating the Septuagint, for some unknown reason, they changed some of the content of several books. They added many books, and they rearranged the order of the books. Well, early Christians, those that put their faith and trust in Jesus, used the Hebrew Bible. They didn't use the Septuagint. But as the center of, uh, the center of Christianity moved away from Jerusalem, and Christians began not using Hebrew, but began speaking Greek and worshiping in Greek, they became more open to the Septuagint, to the books of the Septuagint. And so there was this long and complicated debate about the validity and status of these books. Well, eventually, okay, the Roman Catholic Church adopted many of these books in the Septuagint into their Latin version called the Vulgate. Okay, they had a Latin version of the Scripture, and they referred to it as Deuterocanonical, which is a uh, like a second or, or canonized later. These books were, in their mind, 
canonized later after uh, the first canon. Like, but they were adopted in in their mind. And so the Protestant Reformation starts happening, and the Reformers start saying, well, there's all these non-biblical traditions a part of this church. There's all of this that's not found in the Bible. In fact, only the, uh, uh, the religious, the common folk couldn't read the Bible, and they were like, no, we should be able to read the Bible too. And as they began to read the Bible and go back to the Hebrew, they were like, wait, this is all messed up. And so this Reformation took place, which we're a Protestant church that said, wait, we need to go back to what the Bible says, to the true Bible. And so they rejected the deuterocanonical books, and they called it the Apocrypha. You with me? Which means hidden. And they said, no, these books aren't canonized. This isn't what the early church agreed upon, and so we're not going to count those books as part of the canon. And so they went to the authoritative authoritative books of Jesus and the Hebrew-speaking Jews and what the early church deemed as the canon. So is the Apocrypha bad? I don't think so. I just say we gotta, you would have to understand approaching it, it's not equal footing. It's lesser in that regard. Now, you can look at some of the Apocryphal books 1st, 2nd Maccabees, and there's some very interesting information historically, specifically in relationship to some prophecies in Daniel that are fulfilled. And that would even help us maybe understand end times a little bit better that a lot of those prophecies were fulfilled in this day and age. And so uh, I think there's some worthy reading to say the least, but I think it would also be under, it would be wise to know that they are not on equal footing. Now, the best question really to ask is why bring this all up? Why even talk about this? One, because we have nothing to hide about the Bible. We're not trying to, like the, I mean, I'll just be real, like the Book of Mormon, it's full of problems and crazy stuff that you would be thinking like, what, what, excuse me, how did this take place? Their history is littered with problems, not with the Bible. We can be open and transparent about the whole process. Now, eventually, you've got to have faith, and you've got to believe the miraculous that God inspired the authors and writers, and how, even though it was written over 1,500 years and three continents, that it still has the same message, it still paints the same picture, and still points to one God. When you really look at it, it's like, how could I not believe? This is absolutely divine and amazing what the Scripture does. But let me even take it further than that, beyond the science behind it. Beyond the history of it, can I tell you something that the Word of God has completely changed my life? And I want to end this morning today with a challenge for you. You know, we're, I, I, we talk about this quite a bit, how important it is. But listen, don't neglect it. Don't. And don't read it as just for historical evidence and archaeologists. And a lot of people have used the scriptures to guide them to different cities, to different places, to different information. Yes, absolutely. But this is our spiritual food. It is special revelation where God can speak to you. Don't ignore it. Don't neglect it. Don't just pick it up every once in a while. Treat it as you would physical food. I don't think many of us in here, and the mirror tells me, I'm not skipping many meals. 
I, I'm, I'm hitting up some, some physical food daily. What about the spiritual food? How are you doing? You know what? It's okay to have discipline in your life where you, you even make yourself to do it, but I, I hope that it becomes a joy for you, a treasure for you. Life has been crazy for me for years in, in different ways, and I've, I keep going to the Word, and God keeps speaking to me through it, from challenging thoughts to encouraging thoughts. But the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. Can, can you think about that, God's Word being alive? Listen, th- His Word is alive. It's powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Why would you pass that up? Well, maybe you don't want to be exposed. But can I encourage you, the fake, non-exposed life is not going to get you anywhere. You might as well go bare before the Father who created you, who knit you together in your womb, who knows all about you anyway, and allow him to speak to you. Because it might just be a word of encouragement, a word of help, a word of direction. You know, we probably have notes we've kept along the way. And maybe we've gone back to them for inspiration. But they're dead. They're not alive. I wish I could, had an illustration of, man, I, I go back to look at these love notes my wife wrote me. She, she, didn't, she didn't do none of that. Lucky to get a smile out of her. But I'm just kidding. We used to be on Zanga back in the day. Anyone know what Zanga is? Online, put a thumbs up if you know what a Zanga, Zanga is. It, it was the, it was the uh, MySpace before MySpace. It was like a, a, a way to post and have a community. It's social media uh, that was in the beginning stages of, of posting little notes or thoughts. Well, Kim, I believe, and you might correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you started one just to impress me. And so you would put like spiritual things on there like, ooh, this guy, he's a preacher I better put some Bible verse and I was got me I was like dude this girl loves Jesus and she cute oh and I've gone back before and I've looked Isaac is that cool can I say that about your mom all right good all right I've gone back and looked at those it's like awesome it's really cool to have but you know what it's not alive the word of God is still applicable to your life in this moment not just the past Not just the present, which is really cool that it's alive, but it also speaks to the future. So let me encourage you today. Don't neglect it. Everything in my life that is good, everything that has come in my life as far as spiritual vitality and fruit has been from a relationship with God that started in his word. I've told you before, but I'll say it one more time for people that are new online. My life did not take off spiritually until as a young boy in junior high, I started reading the Word of God daily, consistently. Junior high boy, reading the Word of God, taught, get in it. And it was probably more pharisaical at the beginning, I don't know, but I can tell you it changed my life. It was discipline, it was something I made myself do. 
But I, as I look back over my life, what kept me in the direction that I was going and staying on the path that where I was, a path that led to fruit and to vitality, was because of a time in the Word. It wasn't mountaintop, mountaintop, even though we had those in camps and things like that. What was changed the trajectory of my life was time in the Word of God. Get in the Word. You can trust it. It's reliable. But even beyond that, it's alive and powerful. Get in the Word of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your Word. Thank you that we have it. Thank you that it has been preserved for us. Thank you for the incredible access that we have through the Internet. Thank you for apps. Thank you for copies. Thank you for your word. And not only just uh, having it, but the how alive and powerful your word is and that it speaks today. Thank you for special revelation that we have your voice, we have your heart, we have your character, we have you in the word of God. I pray for us that are listening, whether through a podcast or Facebook Live or YouTube or in this room, that we would make the commitment to get into the word consistently, pray it, read it, study it, and not as a textbook, but that you would use the word to shape us, mold us, penetrate our hearts, change us into the image of Jesus. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see every time we're in the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is Pastor John. Thank you so much for listening to the Everyday Church Podcast. For more information on us or if you happen to make a spiritual decision during this message, please let us know and go to our website, www.everyday.church. There's an email link that you can click on, and we would love to hear from you. If there's anything going on that has happened during this message, if the Lord has spoken to you or you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Also, if there's a prayer request or concern, then you can email us, and we would love to take the time to pray for you and respond in any way that we can. Again, thank you so much for listening. God bless.